Hi, you're listening to This Food Thing with me, Gemma Richards. On this podcast, we discuss our relationship with food, whether it is easy or less so, and how it affects our behaviour. I suffered with eating disorders for years, and it took everything to pull through. Now that I'm at the other side, I want to open up the conversation, find out how other people manage this basic and most fundamental of relationships. I'm taking a light approach, but I think if this area of our lives is skewed, then so is the rest. It's never just about food. Hi, and welcome back to this Food Thing podcast. Today I'm with JL Keyes from Adelaide. JL had anorexia for nine years, followed by chronic fatigue, migraines, depersonalization, OCD, and suicidal depression. Now recovered, JL is the director of JL Keys Anorexia Unlocked, an online platform offering support and solutions for recovery from eating disorders. She considers her greatest achievement to be the recent publication of her book, Anorexia Unlocked, Understanding Your Story Through Mine. JL, welcome to this Food Thing podcast. Thank you very much, Gemma. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation ahead. Yeah. Me too. Um, I understand depersonalization. Is it depersonalization disorder as being a dissociative disorder? So you're not in your body, you're not really here. Is that correct? Yeah, it was. It was a very hard one to describe to anybody and to give it a name for many years. Um, And in the end, I came up with depersonalization. And it's that feeling or dissociation, I think, is another term that's often given to it. But it was that feeling where I didn't feel like I was in the room, I wasn't on the planet, I wasn't here. And um, if I went and had an experience, you know, for the day or whatever, and at the end of the day, someone said, what have you done today, JL? I'd have to really stop and think, you know, where I'd been and what I'd done. And if I'd seen someone in particular gone and had a, you know, a cup of tea or something and a bit of a chat, a bit of a gossip, <laughs> um, I'd have to really think long and hard. I think I caught up with her. Yes, I think that was today, but it would feel like it was, you know, 100 years ago and I was recalling something from way back then. So it was a very hard one to to identify for a very long time. Were you you in your body? Uh, Well, I know a lot of people would say to me, you know, do you feel like you're outside of your body? And I think because I don't know anyone else who's had this experience to actually talk to them and then sort of confer about what our experiences are and come up with some sort of alignment, um, it's a really hard one to answer because I feel like I'm in my body. I felt like I was in my body and everything. And I got a bit annoyed in the end when people said to me, do you feel like you're not in your body? And I go, yes, I am in my body, but I just (laughs) feel fuzzy in the head. And the other way I would describe it was, Um, If you've been to a party and you've had a few too many drinks and um, you know that you're there, you know you're at the party and you've got all your friends around you, but there's sort of that vagueness as well of, am I really here? And then the next day, did I talk to him? Did I? I? Oh, I'm not sure. You know, it's that sort of um, feeling and that's I can't really describe it any other way than that. So, yeah. I can relate to it because... I think I felt that like like that for for a long time, um, and I used to get sort of somatization of feelings, my emotions in my body. So, for instance, I can remember being in therapy and the therapist asking questions that I was uncomfortable with, and my whole body would go numb, and I would feel like I wasn't in the room, and it would feel as though someone had pulled the blinds down in front of my eyes, and. Um, I couldn't focus, I couldn't concentrate. So I, I don't know if that's similar. I think it's incredible how our bodies respond to our emotional states. Yeah, no, that that wasn't my experience. I think when I was going through therapy, the way that um, I guess I worked out that my therapist had asked the right question, I was hitting the nail on the head, was yeah. I would actually either want to get up and run out of the room right. or I would just have fear, <laughs> fear come over me or... Okay. I would just immediately go into very sad depression and and oh, okay. sort of put my head down and felt like a little girl and like I didn't want to respond and things like that. So, yeah, okay. I guess everyone's okay. journey is a little bit different um, in how they respond when they're working through it. Yeah. So you've had a, a serious history 
Um, and congratulations on your recovery because not everyone recovers. Not everyone no. gets well. Uh, uh, yeah, I hope this isn't a trite question, but I have to ask my first question because it's the premise of the podcast. Um, food, yeah. is it is it friend or is it foe now? And then we'll talk about Oh, now it's friend. Yes, yes, very much so. Um, I mean, I eat very well. People around me tell me I do, but I guess it's become a lifestyle. I mean, being a food and nutrition teacher as well, you know, I was anorexic and I was, you know, teaching my students all about food and nutrition and not following the guidelines really and expecting sure. them to. But um, once I went into recovery and went down that pathway, it was just a natural thing for me to look into the nutrition and what nutrition actually does for our bodies, particularly when it's been depleted for so long and how to nourish and restore the body. So it was an automatic um, thing for me to actually follow up and do and out of that became an interest of all things healthy I suppose and um, but I just loved it I loved um, learning about nutrition and learning about food and what it does for us and so I still follow those guidelines today um, not pedantically I mean it's just automatic for me at the moment so um, I guess, you know, I guess I could actually answer friend and foe because there are some foods that I don't consider to be foods, like a lot of our processed foods, which mm -hmm. I just would never entertain the thought of putting into my body. I guess I'm at the point where I think, well, if it's not going to nourish and do me any good and it's going to do me more harm, then why would I want to put it in there in the first place? I was going to say that that's a kind choice, isn't it? It's not a, a choice based on some distorted uh view about food and, and yourself and what it's doing that's a an informed kind choice that you're like I just don't want to put that in my body yes I guess it is and it also comes stems from um, having been sick for so long and um, when you've had an experience like that where you're so depleted and you can hardly function and you have to use the walls to work around and all of that sort of thing I think it wow. makes you stand up straight and take your health very seriously and um, also I'm at an age now where a lot of my friends around me, you know, we're all getting older and mm -hmm. I see the damage that their life choices have made and I see some of the illnesses that are creeping into their lives and some of yeah. the struggles that they're having and I can put it down to, well, it's your lifestyle choices. It's the way you're eating. You can't expect to eat all that rubbish <laughs> and expect your body to keep functioning, you know, like you were a 20-year-old. It's just not going to happen. So, um, and I am at the receiving end of a lot of, um, you know, um, what do you call it, pick on, I suppose, you know, picked on for, you know, my healthy eating. But, like, I wouldn't know how else to do it. Uh, when did, I, um... I just wouldn't know. Well, sure, for sure. Yeah. And, and of course, your lifestyle, yeah, how you live now is going to influence how you're going to feel in 10 years time. Yeah. And, and food plays such an important part. And certainly if you're depleted, yeah. yeah, it takes a while to build it all back up. When did you become That's anorexic? Right. And do you know why you became anorexic? Was that the first um, thing? Um, I became anorexic at the age of 15. Um very briefly, I was born on a farm. Originally, at the age of six, my father thought it was a good idea to go into the Methodist ministry, as it was called back then, so a religious ministry. And yeah. that ultimately meant leaving the farm and living in Adelaide here for four years while he trained and then shifting down to a little fishing village for three years and then shifting up to <laughs> a wheat and sheep one, you know, for three years. And wow. um, as a result of all of those changes going on, um, you know, I was the minister's daughter, I was the top athlete, I was a straight-A student, and so I had all the characteristics for, you know, people to bully me. So and that's exactly what happened, and I was isolated and bullied and felt very lonely. So that was certainly a huge contributing factor at the age of 15 when I just longed for acceptance and wanted to have a best friend and those things that I hadn't enjoyed throughout my childhood. And so... I don't recall, but I must have done something like standing in the front of the mirror or comparing myself to the other girls and going, well, maybe it's what I look like. So I decided to change my diet. And once again, back then, I was enjoying my home economics classes, hence coming a, becoming a home economics teacher. 
And um, so, you know, I cut out all those things that we weren't supposed to have and really refined my diet to um, the food I ate was quality, but it certainly wasn't enough. So the weight dropped off pretty quickly and so did everything else in my life. So I was no longer the athlete or I maintained my straight A's because I was too scared not to. Um, My vocal work, I used to sing a lot and then, you know, exhaustion set in. So that was the end of that. So, but under so at the time no one asked me no one said gee you've lost a lot of weight there was just no knowledge your or parents awareness didn't say that, anything no I know my mother took me to the doctors a couple of times and said you know Jenny Lee has um you know that time of the month isn't happening for her anymore and they were trying to work that out and then they'd say well how much are you eating and she'd say well she's lost weight and that would always end in well I think she's fine you know, where clearly I wasn't. And of course, I wasn't going to rock the boat because I didn't want to put on weight. So I wasn't going to join into that conversation at all. But did you, um, were you more accepted Did uh, at school? Because if you, you were bullied and and you wanted a best friend, did it work? No, it didn't. (laughs) No, but then Uh, that was at the end of my time at, um, this, you know, the third place that I went to live at. I then came down to Adelaide and I went to boarding school for two years for my last two years of secondary education. And that didn't help either because um, all of a sudden there was no one around at all to check on me. There was no mother and father. There was no family. There was just all the girls in the boarding house. And um, so once again, I could disguise and hide what I was doing and out of, you know, away from the eyes of everybody. So there was never a question for those nine years. Um, until I was 24 and by this stage I'd somehow got married (laughs) and we shifted to Victoria. Um, I'm in South Australia here and we shifted to Victoria with my new husband and he became a lecturer at at Footscray Institute over there and I secured a teaching position over there. But um, we lived initially across the road from an ammunition factory and, of course, that was just spewing out chemicals. You know, we were breathing that in and once Mm. again... You know, we know now all that fast forward all these years, but back then there was no knowledge of the damage that breathing in those sort of chemicals does to the human body either, particularly if you're depleted as I was. So very, very quickly I went downhill and that's when the other illnesses began to develop. That's when I, the chronic fatigue, and then I started to get the migraines and then the depersonalisation sort of came and went. Sometimes I'd have it and sometimes I wouldn't until it became a permanent thing. What was the depersonalisation about? Look, I don't really know. For me, I just think it was um, the way the body handled the position it found itself in. You know, it was so depleted okay. and all the chemistry was all amiss. So um, until the chemistry was going to come back and line up again, I that's what I've always said about it rightly or wrongly because I've never ever been able to find anyone to be able to talk about that with you know on any sort of concrete level even the doctors that I've said they go oh okay yep and but they don't really know well that was my experience in it so you might be able to um, inform me better if you've had this experience and you know share you know I'd like to actually hear that um, from you Gemma you know what you did to bring yourself out of that um I talked. I know that that's not the only way to to recover. I had a lot of therapy. um, And I, it was like thawing out. Yeah, I talked and opened up. I sat with my feelings. I I started to eat. Um, It was just a gradual process. I couldn't put my finger on one particular moment where something happened and it was like, yeah, that's it. I just gradually began to open up, you know, like the door opened very, very slowly. Um, (laughs) And I think also if you're, when you're anorexic, well then when you do start to eat again, it's, it's obviously it's terrifying, but let's, it's joyful as well because your palate's so restricted, isn't it? And you suddenly discover foods and tastes and flavors, and and it's like being it's a bit, it's a bit like being born again. That whole thrill of of recovery, I really I really experienced that. And to be to have the absence of it was also just thrilling as well. 
Yes. Um, yeah. And you have your energy back. So you, you, you know, well, I have my energy back. So I felt alive. Um, yes. I don't know if that so, makes yeah, any sense. It pays off and that pulls you further in that direction again, which is great. But um, yeah. yeah. So, but just to finish, you know, that initial question you said, you know, what actually caused it. I didn't actually find out because at at the age of 24, what happened then, I was teaching, you know, at school in um, Victoria and one of my colleagues was pregnant and with her first baby and um, she wanted me to go and see her doctor at one of her appointments and I thought, well, why would I go with you? I mean, you're pregnant, I'm not. You're the pregnant one. And mm-hmm. um, she and I found out when I got there that she had already spoken to this doctor about her concerns for me. And so she had obviously, you know, viewed that something wasn't right, but she never actually voiced it with me. So that then began the long journey back, if you like. Um, I was then referred to a psychiatrist down in Geelong, which is at the bottom of Victoria, and um, all he wanted to do was feed me medication, which never worked. But he never asked the question why, never asked to look at the story or my belief systems or my thoughts or behaviours and all of those things that didn't eventuate for me until I was 37 years old. And um, so then the big path of, you know, naturopaths and allergists and this and that and the other and, you know, to try and and get well. And I I did restore the weight because I was too afraid not to because I got weighed every week when I went back and I was too scared that they'd tell me off because I was a child that was always told (laughs) off growing up and punishment was a huge thing in my childhood. So I didn't want to have those experiences, you know, with the doctor. But um, look, it wasn't until I... So it kind of saved you in a way? Well, it did, yeah, having that fear, I guess, and and also eventually getting to the point where you realise that by eating more, no, you're not just going to, you know, have this big fat tummy and, and, or, you know, this distorted look. It is going to evenly place itself on your body, and that took me a while to, you know, feel comfortable that that would be the outcome. But um, but because the other um, associated illnesses persisted, um, I was still in deep trouble. <laughs> so, um, so let's and let's, then let's take a, a, yeah. a quick break, and then we'll we'll come back. Okay. Yep. You're listening to this food thing with me, Gemma Richards. Hi, welcome back to this food thing podcast. I'm with JL Keys from Adelaide. And we were just talking about um, JL's associated associated illnesses when she was recovering from anorexia. So we got to the point where um, you've put on weight and you're living near the ammunitions factory and you have also gone down the path of nutritionists and allergists, et cetera, et cetera, because you're experiencing migraines and suicidal depression and OCD. Um, yeah, so go for it. Yeah, we'll pick up from there. And just to um, mention that I was no longer actually next to the ammunition factory. We lived in that position for two years. And then we bought 10 acres um, between Melbourne and Geelong in Victoria. And I thought, well, that'll be a turnaround because I'll be out in the fresh air and the clean air and all of that. But unfortunately, that wasn't the outcome. Um, So... Yeah, when I became pregnant with my children, that's when I went really downhill all over again. So I think my chemistry was really, you know, up a pole somewhere and not willing to come down yet and um, be with me again. So, um, yeah, I I had the two children. OCD developed with my first pregnancy and continued on for probably the next 10 years until I was sick of folding everything. And um, (laughs) then, yes, I went to naturopaths, whoever suggested you know oh, this person might be able to help you or that person I would just turn up and I would do everything I was told but I wasn't recovering nothing yeah, was changing so yeah. um so then we decided to sell the 10 acres and to come back to Adelaide and my son was about to go to kinder and then go to school and it was always the plan to come back to Adelaide when the children were reaching you know primary school age anyway so I came back and I went to Flinders Medical Centre here in Adelaide and they have an outpatient and an inpatient unit for people experiencing eating disorders. And I went as an outpatient and he insisted I go on to medication and that made the OCD worse, but I could never convince him that that's what was happening. And so that was a nightmare, just trialling one after the next, after the next. Um, But knowing what I know now, he was absolutely useless for his $150 an hour 
because he never, right. ever asked why. He never looked at my story or if I did produce tears, he never said, okay, we've got some tears here. What are they telling us? What are you connecting to? Mm-hmm. What are you thinking right now? What's your emotions? Mm-hmm. Look, I can't remember what he asked. He was just useless. So anyway, yeah, I just got sicker and sicker actually and then um, we were back in Adelaide for a couple of years and I'd gone into absolute fear-driven behaviour. My children had to be perfect. My house had to be perfect. My husband wasn't good enough anymore. He had to change his behaviour and, oh, I was just getting absolutely out of hand. And then we decided, well, he decided to apply for a job in Darwin, which is at the top of Adelaide, and um, next thing we were all on a plane to Darwin. And unfortunately that was the uh, close of my marriage being up there. It was just way too much pressure for me, anxiety, everything just absolutely tipped me over the edge. So I brought the children home and we'd rented out our two acres in the Adelaide Hills. So the children and I came home and it was by chance actually that um, – I wanted to support the children through that separation process and a lady called Joan Hookstad had been uh, recommended to me to speak to about that. So I did go and visit her and um, her conclusion was that my ex-husband and I were doing quite a good job for the children And um, but intuitively she knew that there was something for me to discover and when she offered that I just went, oh, I just don't think I can talk about me anymore. I've done it for way too long. And she said, well, you know, okay. I'm here if you change your mind. And it was only about a week later that I was with a girlfriend sitting on her balcony um, in Belair overlooking the trees and everything. It was beautiful, having a cup of tea. And we were talking all things childhood and anxiety because she suffered a bit as well and trying to work out why we had turned into these sort of adults. And um, she asked a pivotal question and it was, JL, do you think something happened in your childhood that has contributed to everything that you're suffering? And I just went bang. I just went into absolute fear, absolute panic. I jumped up off the chair and went and hid over by the wall in the corner and felt like an absolute wow. tool. <laughs> but, um, wow. and then went and I just shook. And then when I settled down, I just went and sat down and I said, Vicky, oh, my goodness, and she said, I think you need to explore that jail, and she was right. So back to Joan I went, and mm-hmm. um, I went into therapy with her for quite a length of time, and so she practised reality therapy, and this is what I really bang on about because I guess it was the therapy that supported me in my recovery, and it's the one that I use with my clients. So she looked at my story and she looked at my thoughts, my behaviours, my emotions and my physical symptoms at that point. She looked at needs and wants and she looked at beliefs and value systems. And the most important area she looked at was the relationships that I had in my life and the quality or the healthiness or unhealthiness of those relationships and how they might be impacting how I was living in the world. And um, it was during that time that, um, rightly or wrongly, um, I developed dreaming and dreaming became a very big part of my life. And initially I thought it was all a bit silly, but then I went and studied it and learnt about it and I could came to the point where I could rely on my dreams because I always had them backed up by somebody else in the real world. You know, I'd be somewhere and I go, oh, I tripped that that happened the other day and you're now telling me it did. Oh, my gosh. Right. So, um, and out of all of that experience came the sexual abuse that I had endured as a child while living on the farm. And um, Had you not, so had, you, then that, had you forgotten that then? Yes, I didn't know at all. And when it was first suggested to me, I thought, oh, don't think so. <laughs> I don't think that's ever happened okay. to me. But people who were in the know, they could, and you know, they were counsellors themselves. You know, they could see or read the symptoms in me of how I was talking and how I was relating. And and I mean, I can see that now in people too that I've come out the other side. So um, it was at the encouragement of some of those friends back at that time as well for me to really look into this. And so. The first one returned, the memory returned quite quickly and that was with a godfather and I was five and my father had joined, you know, the ministry and we were going down to Adelaide and he took me with him and dropped me off for a holiday with my godparents on the way. When he came back five days later, he picked me up to take me home 
And um, the memory of that one came back very vividly of what was done on this particular Saturday night. And then on the Sunday morning, of course, going off to church and um, my godmother was the organist and um, I refused as a child to sit with my godfather and I clung to her out on the seat next to the organ. And then when we went to sit in the pews, you know, when the sermon was about to take place, I just would not sit next to him. And, you know, you think that would be a fair indicator that something's Do you think your godmother knew? I think she did in the end. Did she? No, that's Did you ever confront your godfather? No, because um, my knowledge of all of this came after both of them had passed away. And um, he, when he passed away, it was neither here nor there. Uh, She played at my wedding. She came to my wedding. Um, But I saw her one day because my mother then went into the ministry and when she was having her induction day, um, my godmother was there. And I was all excited because I thought, gosh, I haven't seen you for so long. It would be great to catch up. And she wouldn't talk to me. She just made every excuse to not be in my company. And at the time I thought, what is she doing? And fast forward a few years and you find out, you know, the truth. You go, oh, you make the connection. She she knew and whether there were conversations that had gone on or who knows what the adults did that I don't know about. And um, I guess in that moment it all caught up with her. But And I also say that because I know on the Saturday night after he left the room and, and I went, you know, to her, um, yeah, she just told me to go back to bed. She must have known. What had wow. happened did and, your parents and, know? Um, look, whether they knew before, during, after, I don't know. My mother, all the years down the track when I started to investigate and started to ask questions of her, she just said, oh, you know, when you came back from that holiday, I thought you were a bit different. You seemed very quiet, but I thought maybe you were just tired. And that's wow. all she ever said about that particular episode. <laughs> But then, um, so when I discovered all of that, I thought you were. I'm just trying to imagine why uh, your your household, when you were a young girl, um, there was no talking or support because your parents were tied up in the ministry. Is that right? And you had to be the perfect child, the perfect daughter. Well, I think there was some of that. Uh, the religious ideals that they were certainly adopting, you know, from their own childhood and their own belief systems were certainly very constricting. And um, as a child, I guess we always saw our dad as looking after everybody else but us, but also privately, and that was very difficult because out in public he was everybody's friend and everyone just lauded him and thought he was just the most wonderful person. But our experience as children behind closed doors was a man who was a bully, who was to be frightened of, he punished us severely by hitting, and um, he he was a person I just lived in fear of all of the time and there were many experiences where he did different things and I just wanted to launch out and, you know, hit him back, but of course you wouldn't. So there were two very Mm -hmm. different people with my father, but he had his own demons and I would learn that because as I continued to work with Joan, um, once I had discovered the Godfather, as I was saying before, I thought that I'd reached my, you know, the pinnacle, you know, now I could, you know, heal my body. But the dreaming went on and the, this went on and then I'd, I'd out of the blue um, I would meet a cousin or I would meet an auntie or somebody and they would say something and I'd go far out. That was what I was thinking about the other day and here you are telling me it's actually true. And, and so I went on to learn over a period of time that unfortunately my father was also an abuser and um, mm. that, was, that was more devastating because, um, and I'm fast-forwarding very quickly, uh, uh, 17 years of going around in circles and being betrayed and having more lies told me and and all of that, and I finally was too sick to go on. Well, I wasn't sick. I had recovered quite a bit, but um, I had some cancer growing out of my face, and um, my local doctor said, Jail, enough. You must speak to your mother. You must tell her what you know and what you experienced as a child. And I said to her, no, you know, I know so much now and there is no way I'm going to put her through anymore. She's been through enough. And um, when she passes away, I don't, you know, if that's 20 years' time, it's 20 years' time, I'll sit down with my siblings and I'll share it with them. But I will protect my mother till the day I pass away, you know. And that was always the goal until... 
you know, this cancer in your face, what was it telling me? It was telling me, JL, you've got something growing in you that needs to be removed. Yeah. And that's how I viewed it because, I, you know, I've become very spiritual. I think a lot of people in recovering when they go through lives like this, that's a pathway that um, opens up and I'm quite happy to have gone down that pathway and continue to do so. Um, so eventually one day I did put it on the table to my mother to find out that she knew everything anyway. Wow. And, um, really? of course, in that moment I just had memories of, but I came and asked you that day and that day I came and confided in you and that day and all these memories where she was protecting him and it was just, I mean, I just shook. I was shaking all the time anyway and to learn that day that everything that I had uncovered that I thought she had no knowledge of at all was all known and I just, I was gobsmacked. But um, and she refused. I can't. I, said, I can't imagine. I can't imagine the betrayal. Mm, yeah, it's it's huge. It's huge. But then I have, um, you know, cousins of mine that were abused by an uncle, and um, during my pathway through, I knew about that one. I thought, oh, maybe he was one of mine as well, but he wasn't. But I had spoken quite openly to my mother about that and the objection of allowing him to still be in the family, allowing him to be around his grandchildren and, you know, just going on like nothing happened. And what he did to my cousins was absolutely unforgivable. And um, her response was, well, it was done to him as a child, so I guess he doesn't think there's anything wrong with it. And that's fair enough initially, but we've moved Mm -hmm. forward in life so many years now that we know that that's just a nonsense and um, they would never do anything to support those girls. It was never put on the table. I just, I just couldn't believe it. In fact, when I said to my mother, I said, no, if he comes to your 70th, I will take him aside. No one will know. I won't upset it. And I will just let him know that he does not deserve to be in this space here today. And I will ask him to leave because he hasn't earned the right to be here. (laughs) And I got told I had to leave the family. So, you know, that strategy wasn't going to work either. Um, But, yeah, so then there was, you know, another whole uh, round of recovery, I suppose, or healing to do, learning who knew what and who was hiding what from me and how I'd been, you know, lied to along the way and all the rest of it, and then the refusal of my mother to ever talk about it within the family with my siblings and... um, so I actually haven't seen my family for about eight years because I needed to make the decision, unfortunately, to remove myself because I just the trust was completely gone and um, it was never going to be talked about. It was just going to be pushed under the carpet and never spoken of and I just couldn't survive in that community anymore. So that was the, that's a very short version of a very long story, <laughs> you know, coming out the other uh, end. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, incredible, incredible. I mean, also your siblings, did they escape? Are they unscathed or you'll never know? Um, well, I won't know. I think my, and this is just my own opinion from my own observations without any conversation to confirm one way or the other, but my um, my brother, I don't think so. But my two sisters certainly show uh, behaviours indicative of someone who's been sexually abused. If, you know, when I break right, it down, right. I really look at it, it all just made sense. I mean, the next sister down sadly passed away two years ago and um, of cancer. And I was desperate. I remember about the week before she passed away and I didn't know that that was the timing but I um, actually wrote an email to my mother and said, look, even if it's just the three of us in the room, I won't tell anybody else, but she and I have the right, you know, to for her to know why I've walked away from the family, why I needed to do this, why I was anorexic from 15 to 24, why I've behaved like I have at times, and to clear my name, you know, and to bridge the gap mm. that had developed between her and me. And also for her to know her story. And I put that all down in an email and I never got a reply. So, um, but a week later, um, I had a phone call from my son and said, you know, mum, 
your sister's, you know, she's about to pass away. And I thought, far out, I've got to get to the hospital because I'd only seen her once um, in that two years. And um, then I discovered that her partner and her children and that were there and I thought, nah, if this is, if I walk in, it could just be awful for everybody. So I just decided, nah, I'll go well, this was the 24th of December, so I thought, well, I'll we'll get through Christmas and I'll go and see her on the 26th, and unfortunately I was too late. But um, my daughter then rang me and said, Mum, you know, um, my brothers rang me to say, you know, this is the situation, and I've texted Grandma to say, you know, why haven't you told my mum? And um, the text came back because it's not my responsibility. Wow. And, of course, wow. that was, well, well who's this? Who, who should be telling me my sister's passing, you know. So, yeah, yeah. There's, it's, it's a huge story and it's a very, very sad one, but it's one that um, doesn't escape everybody. You know, there's so many stories across this planet and I guess that's why I'm so frank yeah. and honest when people, and I get more frank and more honest, the more podcasts or communications or platforms that I go on to to share my story because I'm realising that the more nitty-gritty I guess you give it, then other people are going to yeah. perhaps align and go, yeah, I am allowed to talk about this. I am allowed to heal from this. Yeah. I don't have to accept this treatment of me, you know, and um, so hopefully that's what, you know, it's achieving as well. I absolutely agree. And uh, you're the person, particularly within your family, who said this stops here because clearly it's generational and who knows how far back it goes. Mm-hmm. And when people don't talk about things, things are kept secret. And the shame that surrounds all these issues that happen to so many people, but when it does happen, you're isolated and on your own. The shame that, you know, I'm so struck about the cancer growing on your face and you having to face up to it and be public about it because you go out and you're public and in in public and, you know, you've got something on your face. People look at you and want to know what's going on, don't they? Metaphorically, all that stuff is going on inside. And, um, yeah, it's like yeah. talking it gets rid of the shame, it dissolves the shame. Yes, and I made it very clear to both my parents when, you know, during the time I was going down to see them and I was starting to get an inkling that my father, if it wasn't him, he certainly knew who it was and what had happened and I knew that very strongly. And um, they had every opportunity, you know, to, look, I just want to know my story. Please just put it on the table There'll be no courtrooms. There'll be no, you know, blackening of names. This is just within the family and we'll solve it and find a new pathway forward as a new family. But obviously the fear was too great. Um, Yeah, for them on that side, it was way too great. They couldn't meet me. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. God, it's it's extraordinary. Um, Let's take a little break and then we'll be back in a moment. Yeah. You're listening to This Food Thing with me, Gemma Richards. Welcome back to This Food Thing podcast. I'm here with JL Keys. Um, and I just asked JL in the break why she didn't go under, how she was able to recover after so much stress and trauma. Yeah, there certainly wasn't an easy path. I think I developed, well, I know I did. Right from the beginning when I was so sick, I made a decision to get out of bed every day. It didn't matter how I felt. And to keep living as um, productively and as, you know, out in the social world, and I've certainly learnt that when people have read my book now that I've written it and people who have known me during this period of time, and they just look at me and go, how? how? This is not the person we knew. And so everything that I was suffering and putting up with and living with um, wasn't known to the general public and it wasn't out of shame. It was out of me making a determined uh, decision to be as normal as I could because I felt if I gave in to the illnesses, I would never get out of bed again and I would never have the strength to actually fight them. So um, against the odds, I'd get up every day and sometimes I'd have a migraine and I'd be out playing basketball with my son. Now at this age, I don't know how I did it, but I did. And so that was one of the things I guess I did to say, look, I'm not going to let this illness beat me and I've got two beautiful children here who deserve to have a mother. Right. And I'm now a single mother, so 
it's up to me now. And I even took on boarders from Korea and Japan, beautiful young men that came out to learn English at a college here in Adelaide. And they were always in their 20s because I knew they could take care of themselves. We had wonderful time with them, but they never knew I was sick. You know, I, right. I just okay. didn't know it, so, didn't tell anybody. Why, didn't, why, but, why um, didn't you go under? Why didn't you go under with your suicidal depression and your... OCD. Why didn't you? I put the credit of that down to meeting Joan Hookstead and her taking me down that line of inquiry of, and it sounded silly to me when she first suggested it, she said, right, you're experiencing suicidal depression. What is the message it wants to share with you? Why is it present in your life? And I thought, I just want to hit you over the head right now. (laughs) I wanted to deck myself and you ask me a question like that. Um, So I decided, look, it had worked for other things, you know, where we'd use that process. So I got to a point where one night I got out of bed and I was so low and I just went, okay. I said, why are you here? What what is the message for me? What do you want me to learn from you while you're with me? And I started to get answers coming back. You know, it was the, the sadness of, hang on, you've been abused, you've been betrayed, your family doesn't want to know about it. You know, there was a whole box full of um, reasons why suicidal depression would manifest in my life at some point. So gradually those ideas were presented to me, I guess, and I'd made a very, very determined effort to actually take it seriously and, and write it down. And then when I'd go and see Joan again, I'd say, look, this is what came out of the other night. I was talking, and then we'd talk through, okay, how are you going to move through and accept? Because they're not going to change. So how are you going to accept this, that you're never going to get the acknowledgement that you deserve? And I guess over time, once you've been angry and you've been cross, you work it through and you say, you know what, this is my story, but I don't have to let it go on and consume the rest of my life. I'm angry that they're not helping and supporting me, but seeing as that's not going to change, I need to redefine how I live my life and how I move forward from here. And I have to make the decision that what is right for me and whatever supports me and my health is what I'm going to have to do. And if that means I'm going to be unpopular with some people, well, so be it. I'm already unpopular with some anyway. So there was, you know, a lot more to be gained from um, facing up and actually letting go and releasing the torment, you know, from within of um, not getting what I wanted. And I lived in tremendous fear and I think fear takes you down that road of suicidal depression as well and it certainly was, you know, what was under the OCD, the fear of not being liked, the fear of, you know, everyone turning away from me, not liking my children and a whole host of fears that presented themselves in therapy And so gradually I dealt with each of the fears and removed them as blocks to me carving out a life on my own in a different way. And the other real motivation was my children, you know, by having those two children and particularly my daughter because she was a very, she is a very strong-willed young lady and I can see that she was a gift given to me and I've just written an article for Thrive Global about, no, that wasn't for them, it was for another magazine for a Mother Day inspirational thing where I talk about my daughter and um, why she was my daughter and she was my inspiration and she was my teacher to say, look, this is me, accept me or, you know, forget it. And um, I had to, as I went through. How did you, um, I don't know if you've forgiven your dad, whatever forgiveness means to you. How did you resolve, surrender, let go? Because you've done a serious amount of letting go, uh, all the stuff around your father. Um, I think in the end, because he uh, suicided, um, and I always see that did as, he? you know, he I knew I was getting close. That's how I. We've never had a conversation, so I don't know if I'm right. But I'm on the year that he so passed he, he away. Took his own I'd life. Actually, right. Yes, he did. Yeah, he tried wow. to in the March of the year that he did, and that wasn't successful. But intuitively, I knew that in November he would try it again, and um, that because that was that strong side of me that was very intuitive through all of this. And I remember meeting a cousin five weeks before this happened and I hadn't seen her for a long time. And she said, oh, how's uncle, you know, my dad? And I said, um, five weeks. And she said, what do you mean five wow. weeks? And I said, he'll be born in five weeks. And she said, far out, how do you know that? 
And uh, five weeks later, I said, I'll see you in five. And five weeks later, we were at my father's funeral. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, and so, and then I had, um, so I went to the funeral and there were 500 people there. And I was like, far out. You know, and of course, I knew a very different person to what all these people knew. So that was a, I just went in there and I just graciously did everything in support of my mother because that's wow. where I was at at that point in time mm-hmm. because I still hadn't, this was long before I'd confronted her. And, mm-hmm. um, but that night I had a very, very strong dream. And it was so real. It was so we were back on the farm and I was a little girl and we were sitting at the table in the kitchen area there. And it was just him as a young man with his hat on and his, you know, um, clothes that he wore to be a farmer. And he just stood up and belted the table in front of him and said, but you don't realise I don't want to be gay. And I went far out. Wow. And when I woke up that next morning, I went, well, gee, that's, that's a thought that hasn't entered into me before. Where the heck's this coming from? And I thought, oh, this is really silly. But I also knew that my dreams always gave me strong messages. And so fast forward about six months, I think I woke up one morning and I had a really strong feeling I would see this particular cousin. And I thought, well, how can she doesn't even live in South Australia? How am I going to possibly see her? And within seconds, my mobile went off and there she was sending me a message saying she was at the Adelaide airport. Would I like to come down and have a cup of tea? And I went, right, okay. Yes. (laughs) And then intuitively (laughs) again, I knew that she had information for me, which was going to help me, you know, with the next step of undoing all of this. And uh, sure enough, at the end of my time with her, she was quite hesitant, but um, she just said, declared some information to me that she knew you know, about this aspect of my father. And uh, she was very scared, I think, but she knew she had to do it. And I just gave her a big hug and I said, you've got no idea. You were meant to tell me that and I can tell you it's not going to go any further. And now I'm allowed to talk about it at this level, so I'm not um, going against what I've said to her. But it was just that, it was just like far out. And then there was a a series of events that happened after that with different people where that side of my father came to the foreground. And so in the end, you asked the question, how did I forgive him? I guess, um, first of all, read my my book, listeners, and you'll see how I did it. Um, Because I've, you know, devoted a chapter to him, which I called The Choice to Leave Was His. And it was stepping back, well, stepping into, I should say, into his shoes and saying, okay, I'm this man now. What is my experience of life? Well, I had a very controlling mother. I was the youngest. I was always told I wasn't good enough. I was always yelled at Mm -hmm. and all of the things that, you know, unfortunately repeated with his own children, but you don't know the dynamics until Mm -hmm. you know. And and then the poor guy was gay and, um, yeah, and there's other things around that that I'm not going to actually share here. Um, but sure, when I put sure. all of that, but you felt tremendous compassion and empathy. Yeah, I just thought because in my book, I just at the end of the chapter, you know, all he had to do was talk, but for him, the fears yeah. were too great, and um, so it was at that stage I went, you know what, I don't like it. He had the power to tell me my story and all that, but his fear was greater than mine. Oh my god, that must have been huge because I know how big it was for me back then, and to take his own life that's how much he feared the truth coming out. So, you know, there is compassion in that, you know, for a person who's lived this life boxed in and feeling like they have to be a minister in the church and feel, you know, and living a non-authentic life right to the core, Yeah, you know. um, So that's how I've done it with him. And with my mother, I guess I've done the same. I've stood in her shoes and said, okay, what's your experience of the world and how do you view it? And what fears did you grow up with? And if you haven't dealt with those, then there's no way in heck you're going to be able to sit down and talk to me at a table about this topic. So as much as I would like them to, I can also appreciate that their fear was greater than mine and they're very unable to to follow through on that. So so having those views and turning it around in that way um, was freeing, you know, for me. But I still had to decide to walk away and not be a part of it because I didn't know how to now behave with this new dynamic 
coming into the um, family yeah, well, sometimes is. sometimes that's what has to happen, isn't it? And it's ex- it's an extraordinary story. Um, and yeah, yeah forgiveness yeah. is the, the compassion and surrender is yeah sets you free. So uh, just to let because we're nearing the end, your book is Anorexia yeah. Unlocked: Understanding Your Story Through Mine. So. How can do people can people buy it? Is it online? Um, how can they get hold of it? Yes, it is online. The best way to do that is to actually go to my website, which is www.jlkeys. Keys is K E E Z, just in case people spell it another way. So jlkeys.com.au. And that's my website that um, outlines a bit more on my homepage about who I am and what I bring to the table. And um, then a lot of other pages that I've added as time's gone by. I've got the programs that I share with people um, to help them heal. And in those programs, I put a lot of excerpts from my own story and um, some of my poetry as well, and to hopefully support and nurture them as they go through the process. Um, okay. And then I do have okay. a page dedicated to my book. And on there, it tells you why I wrote the book and everything, but also um, tells you where you can purchase the book. And you can purchase it through Amazon as paperback or ebook, um, and other platforms as well for the ebook. So that's the best way to get your hands on that and um, and read more about the story, I suppose. But more importantly, I divided the book into three parts, and the first part is um, twenty seven or twenty eight short little chapters of my life to sort of give an overview of what life was like for me growing up and then in the centre I've called it Pearls of Wisdom and so these are the learnings that I take from it and um, you know the wisdoms I guess and this is what I hope people will um, align with and say yeah that happened to me and this is what she did to forgive or whatever and so just some guiding lights I suppose of if you're finding yourself here these might be helpful ways of moving forward and then the last okay. bit is just a few pages. This is what happened. This is what I did. I did reality therapy. Boom, 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 and I came out the other end. <laughs> so that's just sort of a wrap up. Of just like that. Together. Just like that. As we're at the other end as well, my final question to you is on a completely different tact. What five foods would you take okay. to an island? Oh, to an island with me? Well, yeah. I'd have to take dark chocolate, my homemade dark chocolate, if I had time mm-hmm. to make it before I had to go. Yeah, um, uh, avocados, avocado dip is another one. Um, I'm a cheesecake girl. I love baked cheesecakes <laughs> as well. Okay. Um, probably vegetable lasagna. Okay. The other one as a savoury as well. And then the last one, is, well, it is a food, you know, a smoothie that's got everything in it. You've got kale in there. You've got blueberries in there. You've got raspberries. You've got everything happening, dates and zhup, And um, that would be the fifth one. Okay, I think you could last quite a long time on your your menu. Um, <laughs> thank you, thank you so much. It's been amazing listening to your story. Thank you for telling it in such uh, honest detail. Thank you very, very much for having me, and I really hope that you know the listeners will um, gain something from it, and um, that might motivate or encourage or inspire them to move forward in their recovery as well. So, thank you for reaching out from Absolutely. the UK to Australia, and. Um, providing us with this opportunity i've really really enjoyed it thank oh, you it's so been much, my absolute Gemma. pleasure and um yeah thank you so much jl thank you thanks for listening i'd love to know your favorite bit from this episode let me know on instagram at this food thing podcast or join us again in the next episode